Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We are repeat offenders. We have been breaking God's laws our whole life. And the soul that sins must die. That's the justice of God. But the love of God says, I want to save them. I am going to send my one and only son, and he's going to pay the price. And we are together going to redeem them by paying the penalty and bringing them into fellowship with us. That's the gospel. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 31, in a message titled, Why It Had to Be So. Now, here's Pastor Brian. I want you to think back to our quote from Bishop Ryle and just a few words that he used. He used the word atonement. He used the word propitiatory. And he also used the term satisfying the demands of God's holy law. Now, as I said, although this is the the biblical gospel, not everyone wants to believe that or accept that. Let me give you a sample of some of the current opposing views on the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I'm I'm just going to quote from one person, but I could quote from 20 people today who have, to some degree, the public's ear who are saying similar things. But I'm going to use as our sample here today the Reverend Scott McKenna from none other than Edinburgh, Scotland. So he is a minister in the Church of Scotland. And he's in, in many ways, he's very typical of many ministers in that, that denomination. He's very typical of uh, ministers in many denominations across the board. So let me read to you what the Reverend Scott McKenna says. He said, The theology that says Jesus paid the price for our sins is, in my view, an obstacle to evangelism in the 21st century. It is an obstacle because it depicts God as a potentate who demands blood for offenses he has suffered. Our sins have offended him and he demands a blood sacrifice. I'm almost embarrassed explaining this theology because it is well past its sell-by date and in some sense is quite immoral. It is damaging the church. It does not, listen, it does not go back to the Bible. As prevalent as it is within and without the church, it is time to depart, to ditch this substitutionary atonement from the church It is time to ditch it because it obscures the real meaning of faith. In the Gospels, Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities because he was deemed to be a threat to the state. He died a terrorist, albeit a man of nonviolence. So for this minister in the Church of Scotland, who is representative of many other voices, many voices in this country as well, This whole idea that Jesus died for sins, that's been the gospel message from the day of Pentecost, says it's not in the Bible. I just am curious what Bible he has been reading. Uh, I would imagine it's a similar Bible to what we're reading today. They all say pretty much the same thing. And as we looked at Isaiah 53, is there any way around it? 
Well, I guess for Mr. McKenna, Christ's death, I, I don't know. I, I would like to find out from him just exactly what he thinks about it then. But perhaps uh, it was an unfortunate end to an interesting life, perhaps a martyr's death of some sort that we should just admire Jesus, or even as Ryle referred to back in his day, that some people wanted to put forth the death of Jesus as just a good example for us. But even though he insists the Bible doesn't teach this, I think we can insist that he is greatly mistaken. And so we can dismiss these and similar ideas entirely by appealing to Isaiah 53 alone. We we don't even need to go anywhere else. We can, of course, because the entirety of the Old Testament has this truth woven into it. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, it is crystal clear from the New Testament that Jesus died to pay a ransom for sinners. Jesus even used that language himself. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Jesus said, I'm going to give my flesh in exchange for the life of the world. That's that's pretty clear. So we can dismiss these opposing voices as being completely out of sync with what the scriptures teach. Now, I, I get it if people don't like this message. That's understandable. But let's not try to say it's not the message of the Bible. It is. If you don't like it, okay. You don't like what the Bible says. Lots of people don't like what the Bible says. But let's not be mistaken about what the Bible says or doesn't say. The Bible teaches that Christ's death for us was a substitution. That he is our substitute. That he died in our place that had he not suffered and died, we would have to suffer and die eternally ourselves for our crimes against a holy and a righteous God. This is why the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected and killed. But as you know, there is one other thing he must do, and that is he must rise again from the dead. And just as it was necessary for him to suffer, be rejected and died in order to pay for our sins, so he also had to rise from the dead to show that the payment was accepted for our sins and also to conquer death. And that's what he did. And he did that on our behalf. So he's the son that's given to man. He's the son that is given to save man given to redeem man. And so he does that by sacrificing his life on our behalf, but then rising again from the dead. And Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And when we first read that, we might just think that, well, first fruits, that just obviously means the first in order. It does mean that, but it means more than that. Because in the Jewish world, you had these various feasts of the Lord that the people would celebrate, and those feasts would all tell you something about God's redemptive plan. There is a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And on the, on the Feast of First Fruits, what would happen is the priest would go before the Lord 
with a wave offering, a wave meaning that they waved it in front of the Lord. And it would be the first fruit of the harvest. And that first fruit of the harvest was a representative of all the harvest that was to come. And guess when that day of first fruit was on? Guess when it fell? It fell on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus died on the Passover. Guess what? He rose again from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And so when Paul says that he's the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, what he's talking about is he's the one who rose from the dead and is representative of all that will now rise from the dead because of what he did. So because he lives, we will live also. And so he must rise again to conquer death and to then give us the power to rise from the dead. So that's why the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Now, as we wind things down, I want to wrap things up by talking just for a moment about what's happened, not just today, but it, like I said, it's becoming more prevalent. What has happened in people's minds that have led to this resistance toward the substitutionary death of Christ, toward the idea that, that Jesus had to be punished in our place because we deserve punishment. Here, here's how it's happened. It's happened because people have thought of God only in terms of God being a loving God. Now, it does seem that quite often you have this, it, this is just the way it so often works. You, you have views that are at one end of the spectrum or the other. So, of course, we can all think of those people who have emphasized the judgment of God, the wrath of God, God's hatred of sin, all of that. Okay, yes. That if that's all a person ever preached on, that would be an imbalance. But then there are other people who say, oh, that, that's not the God of the Bible, so we're going to go over here and we're going to talk, man, God is love and he's only love and it's just all about love and God loves everybody and don't ever worry about anything. There's no such thing as hell because a God of love would never send people to hell. So what's happened? What's happened to some extent is that people have misunderstood God. God is a loving God. No question about it. God is love. The Bible actually says God is love. It's part of his very nature as God. He's love. He's always been love. He's not just loving. He's love. But the Bible also makes it crystal clear that God is just. He's righteous. He's holy. So if you try to separate those two things, you're going to end up with a problem on one side or the other. And we're living in a time when the pendulum has swung the other direction. And so now it's just God is love, period. And that means there's no such thing as judgment. That means there's no such thing as wrath. That means that there's no way that anybody's going to go to hell forever or anything like that because a God of love would not do that. If we keep the biblical picture of God, we'll never fall into that trap or make that mistake. The biblical picture of God is that God is love, but he's also just. And so it must be this way. Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die. It had to be this way, for this is the only way a just God can pardon guilty 
men and women. Those that see substitutionary atonement, like the person we referred to earlier, those who see this doctrine as nothing more than cosmic child abuse, that's how some have referred to it. They said the idea that God punished Jesus for the sins of other people, that's immoral. That is cosmic child abuse. That is God abusing his child. As though God just took this, his child Jesus and just threw him down for a sacrifice. I'm going to kill you instead of these sinners. Have they not read their Bible? Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Jesus gave his life. God the Father and God the Son in a covenant together. Jesus says, Father, I will give my life for them so we can bring them back to us. There's no cosmic child abuse going on here. Or like the, the person we quoted from said, seeing God as a potentate demanding blood. Now that is an intentional, provocative picture. A potentate demanding blood. Why not see God, and this is the accurate way to see it, why not see God as a righteous judge demanding justice? That's really what it is. And of course, sometimes in justice, there is a life that has to be given, right? And we would not be opposed to that. If, if somebody truly committed horrific crimes and they were not penalized for it, we would think that's an injustice. You know, back after the Second World War and the Holocaust and all of that, you know, they, they gathered together. They had captured all of the remaining living leaders of the Nazi party, all of the ones who carried out demands and plans and so forth of the Third Reich. And they put them on trial at what is known as the Nuremberg Trials. And when they tried them, they found them guilty and they condemned many of them to death. And there was no one that thought that, well, that's not really fair. Why, why are they condemning these, these men to death? No, everybody thought this is absolutely just. This is right. These people are responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even in some cases, millions of people. And therefore, it is absolutely just that they die. If a judge would have just said, well, we're just going to let you slide. We're going to let you go. There would have been a great outcry against the injustice. So God is a just judge. And sins are actually crimes against the high court of heaven, if you will. And so there, there has to be a payment that's made. There's a penalty. Crimes incur a penalty. And so Jesus, he bore the penalty. That is the good news. The suffering and death of Jesus is how a loving but also a just God demonstrates his love without violating his justice. You see, God could not just simply overlook. That would be unjust. And God can't be unjust because part of his nature is justice. But had he just overlooked it, it would have been unjust. So here's the dilemma, if you will, that God has. God loves humanity, but human beings are guilty. How can I freely love them 
when they're guilty. How can I retain my justice but still love them? Here's how God does it. He, along with the Son, God the Father and God the Son, the Son is going to be the one to bear the penalty for our sins. And so the just God can then freely love us. And Paul, he makes that clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. And it's called a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice. That's how God does it. Let me read it to you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. That's what the word means. Jesus is the one who bore the penalty for sin. That's what a propitiation is. This is through his blood. And through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So God is showing that he retains his righteousness. His justice is still fully intact. Because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. This is how God does it. How does he retain his justice but forgive rebels. Jesus is the answer. He dies in our place. He bears the penalty for our sins. He pays for the crimes that we committed against God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And for the squeamish today, for those who just can't see that as being tenable, remember uh, if you don't, if a person doesn't like that message, that's understandable. But don't try to say that the Bible doesn't teach it because the Bible does teach it. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. You see, God's law, God is a lawgiver. He's a judge. And, and God's law, all human laws are to some degree related back to God's law. But have you ever noticed that the law is inflexible? If the laws were flexible, then they're not laws. Laws are inflexible. And I have had the experience, and maybe you have too, of unintentionally breaking laws and nevertheless having to pay the penalty for that. I remember years ago, driving up the five from, when we used to live down in North San Diego County, and Cheryl wasn't with me. I don't remember what the occasion was, but I had all four of my kids in the car and we're driving up and they were being wild as kids would be. And I was speeding and I didn't really know I was speeding. I wasn't paying attention. I was probably trying to keep the kids from killing each other or something. And, but, you know, I'm just barreling up the five there and suddenly I see the red lights flashing and highway patrols pulling me over. And, and as I stopped the car... And I realized, oh gosh, I was speeding. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to say, oh, officer, I am so sorry. You're right. I was speeding. I had no idea I was speeding. I was a little bit distracted. Man, I agree with you. I need to go the speed limit. And this is all good. And thank you. And I will make sure I don't do that again. And I more or less said that to him when he came up to the car. And you know what that did? Did absolutely nothing. He just kept writing. I don't know if they still write tickets out, but he, he just kept writing. And then he just handed me a ticket. Have a good day. See you later. That was the end of it. No flexibility whatsoever. I was like, wait, I didn't intend to do this. I, I wasn't 
trying to speed, that didn't matter because that's how the law is. It's inflexible. And God's law is like that. Now, we might try to plead like, well, I didn't know I was breaking your law. I didn't mean to break your law. And on some occasions, I would say that that there's probably truth to that. But I would also say that there are many occasions when we knew exactly what we were doing. So we are repeat offenders. We have been breaking God's laws our whole life. And this incurs a debt. And the debt is the soul that sins must die. That's the justice of God. But the love of God says, but I don't want them to die. I want to save them. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to send my one and only son and he's going to pay the price and we are together going to redeem them by paying the penalty and bringing them into fellowship with us. That's the gospel. And for this poor fellow who is embarrassed by this and for, for this person who thinks that this is just not, it's a hindrance to evangelism in the 21st century, let me tell you this, if you don't have this gospel, you don't have any good news to tell anybody. There is no such thing as evangelism apart from this message that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And so that's the reality. So the question is after now, I think, answering the question, why did it have to be this way? Why why was it that that Jesus had to suffer, be rejected and die and so forth? The, The final question is then, what must we do? What do we do now? This is what God has done. What do we do now? Well, there's a great answer to that in a Bible story. In Acts 16, maybe you remember the story. uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They get in trouble. They disturb the peace by preaching the gospel. They get thrown in jail. And they're in the jail. They're praising the Lord. It's late at night. They're singing songs. Suddenly there's an earthquake and all the gates of the jail open up. And the jailer thinks that all of his prisoners have escaped. Now, if you're a Roman jailer and you lose your prisoners, then you die. They put you to death. So he thinks that everybody's escaped. So he pulls out his sword. He starts to take his own life. Paul cries out and says, don't do that. Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And so the man now, he comes in. He falls down before uh, Paul and Silas. He's the jailkeeper. He falls down and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved. And they said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. That's it. Jesus said, these things must happen. And this man said, what must I do? Jesus had to die and rise again. We have to believe in him if we will be saved. And so that's the good news. That's the gospel. The substitutionary death of Christ. He died instead of us. He died in our place. We should have died for the crimes that we've committed against heaven. But Jesus took our place on the cross because of his love, because of the Father's love for us. And as we now believe that, then we enter into what he provided for us and that is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God.
the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say by Preston Sprinkle. What does it mean to be male or female? Is it okay for a male to act feminine or a female to act masculine? Can someone be born in the wrong body and have the soul of another sex? How can I love my trans neighbor, friend, or child in a manner that honors Jesus? Although the topic of transgenderism has been largely avoided, mishandled, or misunderstood by the church, Preston Sprinkle addresses these very questions on a biblical and scientific basis. And he does so with a compassion that has been informed by the voices, needs, and concerns from the people within the trans community. The book embodied transgender identities, the church and what the Bible has to say by Preston Sprinkle is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.